Welcome to this episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This is a non-profit, self-organized amateur podcast exploring the history of madness and the way that history continues to influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of a shared past. I'm your host, Holly, and joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This episode contains mentions of misogyny, abuse, anti-Semitism, self-harm, sexual assault, institutionalization, and mass murder. Maya, what comes to your mind when you think about the Middle Ages? So many things. I'm actually a little bit interested in medieval history, so... But I think there's some there's some key elements, right? Uh-huh. Like the Black Plague feels like, you know, really a part of this time period. I think about Christianity. I think about feudalism. I think about monarchy. And I think about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So one of the things that always stands out to me about this period is how colorful it was compared to people's general interpretation. So actually Monty Python with all of its colors and its costumes is more accurate than like a lot of other kind of Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not a Hollywood movie, but you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, it's more of a Yorkshire movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think colorful both in the in the literal sense, you know, I, I often think like, We think of history as being toned down somehow or kind of like a less vivid version of the present, but that was not people's experience of it. No, people like colors. They do. People like colors and they like patterns and... This is a total aside, but have you ever heard that Roman statuary, which we think of as so stately, was often originally painted in bright colors? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just our conceptions of the past are often like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, people like enrichment wherever you go. So Middle Ages Europe, defining our terms here, ran from roughly 500 to 1500 CE, from just after the fall of the Roman Empire to around the time of Columbus. It was a time of change to be sure, um, but again, nowhere near as drab as movies and TVs would have you believe. Medicine in the Middle Ages was largely still based on the ancient Greek model, especially Galen. Galen was a Roman that we talked about who expanded on Hippocrates and other philosophers' ideas. Even the Islamic world pulled from Galen who saw mental illness naturalistically instead of as under the influence of the gods. In fact, the Europeans in the Middle Ages retained knowledge of Galen because of Muslim scholars. So Galen was retained by Muslim scholars and then came back to Europe through those means. Which is extra ironic because in later years, Europe would heavily derive its medicinal practices from Islamic sources. And so they're really having this back and forth between the Christian and Islamic world Mm -hmm. um, of this medicinal information. And to the extent that there was medicine in medieval Europe, it had a lot to do with contact with the Muslim world. Um, And ironically, some of the Crusades as well Mm -hmm. as points of contact and exchanges of information, which is unfortunate that it happened that way. Um, Not my preferred method of communication, personally. No. Um, Hospitals specializing in the treatment of the mentally ill were established in Egypt and Baghdad and were likely the first in the whole world. They were open to anyone, regardless of that person's age, economic status, gender, and religion. 
And so what was it like there? We have an, a direct account from a traveler describing the scene in 1170. Fascinating. Really interesting detail. Patients were chained during the summer months. And then they were unchained once the heat died down. And it was thought that heat would exacerbate symptoms and make things worse. And so they were chained up in the summer months, but al allowed to roam free during the winter. I wonder if that had to do with the humors. Oh, that the, like... The idea of like, so with the humors, you have... The, this kind of elemental balance and some and all illness was thought to be because of disruption and those humors and they had properties like being hot and wet or cold and dry and so I wonder if there was something in there I wonder if there was humoral thinking at play there anyway just speculation but if they were following Galenic models then it's possible yeah especially since we don't know, at least on this podcast, we, we didn't find anything saying to what extent Galenic models carried into the medieval era and what point they, those got ditched. Because the Islamic world will get rid of the humors faster than Europe does. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you're saying, you know, what they, they retain this knowledge, but had they already superseded it by 1170, it's possible. Right. So... Yeah, that's not something we've looked into, but this idea of heat making symptoms worse reminds me a little bit of the humoral system that's been so important to naturalistic conceptions of madness up until this point and continues to be. And so continuing with our description of what these institutions looked like, patients were provided free food. Um, in one location, music was played for the patients and flowers were planted along the walls. Which sounds very nice. That sounds like a great place to relax. There's at um, least some eye to people's creature comforts or engagement with the world. Right. But unfortunately, it wasn't a standard practice across the Islamic world. And we know that in particular in Fez, Morocco, um, beatings were used um, in place of symptom management. So that's not great. So a, di a diversity of approaches across this geography. So the other thing that folks might find interesting is that once somebody was better, air quotes, better, we don't know by what standard that was, they would be allowed to return home. They would just be released. And not only would they be released, but they would be given a sum of money to kind of help them get started and compensate for lost wages um, during their time at the institution. Overall, Islamic asylums would far surpass the conditions of European or Christian asylums, um, which wouldn't even show up until the 14th century. And just the concept of the hospital alone was something that Europeans modeled after the Islamic world. Um, this is also, it's hard to hear this description from 1170 without comparing it to circumstances today where... We hear about some of these things like flowers along the walls and music, um, this kind of eye towards a sense of beauty in the environment and people receiving money on their release in, re in recognition that they've, um, that they're exiting in difficult financial circumstances. I mean, those would all sound like innovations in the system as it exists. Yeah, especially in some places. 
especially today where like there's such a focus on sterility mm. on everything being sterile and clean and easy to clean right and that kind of feels like part of that tension between um kind of medicine as it's strictly defined in the western world today and kind of other approaches to understanding and treating symptoms of madness so as it's following this medical model inpatient institutions are sterile like hospitals to treat other illnesses mm -hmm. what's maybe the most fascinating to me about these institutions um, is the fact that these are not public institutions in the way that we would normally think about them. They're not government funded. Mm -hmm. um, these asylums were run almost exclusively by individual charity, which if you know anything about Islam, charity is one of the five pillars one of the five major tenets of the religion and so it's a religious expression of values to keep and maintain these hospital spaces these asylum spaces there's a different cultural attitude which when you hear that i don't know for for me as somebody who likes the idea of us all coming together and pitching in mm. to create good things for ourselves to be able to have nice things <laughs> This is a really compelling idea to me, and I really um, enjoy it. Yeah, so it, it's, I mean, it's along the lines of a kind of more religiously defined society, but it makes us think about other ways that there might be collective efforts to, to care for people outside of the state systems that seem so inevitable, which, of course, at that time didn't exist in the same way. Yeah, I think that that's a really important thing to point out is that, like, state-run systems are not inevitable. Yes. And that the relationship with the state and your health can change dramatically whether or not you're working with a state institution or not and how that's funded and kind of executed. Right. That's a feature of our historical circumstances, not of human society. So meanwhile, in Christian Europe, hmm. I shouldn't laugh. Oh, <laughs> Just a lead-in. I, I shouldn't be laughing already. I, I really betrayed myself there. Uh, in Christian Europe, madness was attributed either to the humors um, or supernatural forces. And to Christians at this time, a supernatural problem requires a supernatural solution. That's logical. That's, that's logical. That makes sense. Relatively few people thought that sin itself caused illness, though there were some that were moralistic that's like, if you commit sin, that means that bad things happen to you. Yes, on the outside, so is it on the inside, that kind of mentality. Yeah. And during this time, there is no meaningful experimentation to try to counter the humors. There is no experimentation that is investigating the humors, again, in any meaningful way. Or other branches of medicine. Like, my understanding is that there are strong taboos against medical dissection, again, kind of along these religious lines. And so the pathways to conduct that kind of what we think of as science weren't open. Yeah, which absolutely, which kind of halts the entire investigation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so instead of that, we have magic spells, we have shrines, we have holy relics, we have exorcisms, and a church system that's upholding all of these ideas. And it really is worth mentioning that after the fall of Rome, there was a power vacuum. Um, and one of the institutions to kind of take up power during this time and, and snatch it from where the Romans had dropped it was the church. And so the church is powerful in a way that it was not during the Roman Empire. It's kind of its own thing at this point and that's it's a history we just can't get into just because it's too complicated and i've already said too much but just to say that the church itself is is very powerful and influential in terms of setting and guiding people's worldviews and setting the standard for how people's experiences including their experiences with health the body and madness are being defined and to that end, during this period of time, demonology is the main way to understand human behavior and human health. So there's this kind of epic battle playing out before our eyes at all times between malevolent and benevolent forces, between God, between Christ and the devil. Yeah, exactly. It's a purely religious framework. Mm -hmm. Illness could be addressed through exorcism. They might try that. Or through some of these other kind of tokens and techniques and expressions of faith that you mentioned before, like visiting shrines or confession, kind of engaging with faith. Yeah, which is also really interesting that you have all of this construct around um, exorcisms being a way to drive out illness um, because you're ultimately driving out demons pagans converting to christianity would also potentially receive an exorcism and so there's that weird little tangent there where it's not totally clear if the church sees paganism as a form of illness or not but they're all getting the same treatment and so that's very interesting so whether or not you're experiencing symptoms about what we would think of as madness or you're a non-christian looking to convert exorcism might be the answer correct in either case so it's hard not to think that there might be some kind of commonality being drawn among those experiences. So to boot, um, any Christians falling in ecstasy, speaking in tongues, delivering prophecies could be considered to be um, under the influence of what we would call blessed foolishness or the madness of the cross. So there's this whole kind of framework of behaviors within the church that we might term madness or term an altered state that are very much a part of and sanctioned by church life and Christian authorities. Because the church is the dominant force at this point. Like, yes, mm -hmm. you have kings and lords scattered across the land, but they're all kind of united under the church's banner, more or less. That's a that's an oversimplification, but that's a, as far as we're going to go into it on this podcast. <laughs> You've got all these people who are falling in ecstasy, speaking in tongues, delivering prophecies. How does the church handle that? Well, the church is actually very careful about which of these prophecies and visions it endorses because it wants a consistent canon. 
And so if you in your prophecies and your speaking in tongues say something that goes against the canon of the church, you could get in trouble for heresy. It's both extolling the power of God to transform human life and endorsing a faith-based life. But if you're so overcome with that connection to faith or you're receiving visions from God, then that decentralizes the mes message of the church. Exactly. So there's a tension kind of internally built into this approach, the social approach. Yeah. And for the record, if you are just regular mentally distraught, you're not doing any of this religious stuff, you are in the lowest rung of society. And you might be chained up and locked away. You might be put into a cave and just kind of left there. So kind of binding for people who are dangerous to themselves or others and removal from people's immediate vicinity, kind of containment in family systems. My understanding is that you don't necessarily even have to be dangerous to yourself or others. You could just be showing a behavior of difference in one way or another, like people with different neurotypes, mm -hmm. I suspect, would be caught up in this people experiencing like a bipolar disorder or a schizophrenia um, you know all of these people might get picked up and chained up in the bottom of a cave somewhere in addition to people who are a danger to themselves or others if you're exhibiting forms of madness right now in christian europe it's a real toss-up as to what's going to happen to you you're either going to become a prophet you're going to become a heretic or you are going to be left to die somewhere. We also understand that people are being cared for in family systems, and there's a diversity of experiences. So people whose symptoms were intermittent, for example, might experience a whole range of treatment over the course of their lifetime. Um, but really situational, depending on... There's no, there's no formal or centralized care. The asylums that you described in the Middle East didn't exist in Europe at this point. And so you were left to kind of the care and compassion or lack thereof of the people around you. For all of this happening, it wouldn't be until the late Middle Ages that the religiously motivated began to set up shelters called hospices um, of the Holy Spirit. But the goal of these institutions was to save souls and not to treat illness. And so these are our first proto-hospitals in Europe, and they're not... A, even really focused on first aid, they're, they're focused on eternal salvation. Um, and oftentimes a priest would have to sign off on treatment. So in terms of broader medical st structure at this time, like actual medicine, you would find lay healers in the countryside, specialists in the cities. So the lay healers are going to be generalists. They're going to know something about herbs. They're going to know something about first aid. They're going to know something about, say, uh, abortion or... Um, midwifery. Midwifery, things like that. A specialist might know something about surgery, and they would be in the cities where there are more people. And, and the university structure at the same time as kind of hospitals, which again, modeled on the Middle East universities are also taking root and some of some of the oldest universities in Europe are being founded at this time and that kind of starts to centralize a form of medical training but it's not universal no. by any means so this all gets to the point where emperor frederick ii um 
comes in and puts out a couple of reforms. The first of which is saying that if you are going to be a doctor practicing secular medicine, that can be your only profession. You can't be a doctor and a cheesemaker. You can't be a doctor and a barber. You can't do both of these things. You've got to pick one. Make your cheese off the clock. So this, I would see this as a move towards professionalization, that it's kind of an indication that the field of medicine itself is kind of solidifying, that it's that there's parameters forming around it and that those parameters are thought to be to the social good. Yeah, Frederick II also fixed the prices of medication, which is not something we have today. <laughs> We're working on it. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> so are you ready for wildly different tangent oh yeah we've heard way too much about frederick none of this king stuff none of this king stuff so there was the possibility of not becoming insane as an adult or becoming mad as an adult um but being born insane from birth which was thought to be um, explained by the parents' sexual carelessness. Wow. Okay, so alongside all of this stuff about demons and kind of this, like, wrestling for the possession of souls that might be causing unexplainable behavior or otherwise unexplainable behavior, apart from the humors, we also have this idea of, well, you know, the parents were uh, a little too loose, yeah, they were just having a little bit too much fun. Right, because when I first heard about this, I thought that it was like, oh, sexual indiscretion or some kind of like conceived in sin kind of situation. But no, I mean, kind of. But the sin being... Having fun. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's important to note about this period of time, and this will just be our last note on this, is that men and women were diagnosed differently. They got different diagnoses. Since more of a woman was, quote, exposed to the outside, I'm not entirely sure what they mean by this. I think I know what they mean by this. Women were thought to be more susceptible to, de to demons and possession. I think we know what they mean by this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it actually helps explain why I'm getting possessed so much more often than my male coworkers. <laughs> which also might be why I'm getting paid less. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I thought that's where you might go with that. Holly cringed I, in I, advance. I saw that joke coming from across the room. And I was Literally like, oh, ducked. No. <laughs> Men, on the other hand, were more likely to be considered raving mad, um, which is very different and it should also be noted at this time that we're talking about cis women and cis men because that's how the powers that be would have looked at things mm -hmm. through a very cis lens and that is not always how things were constructed but that is once again information for a different podcast all right to the black death <laughs> onward <laughs> onward to the black death I mean, yeah, I feel like everything we've been talking about is a little bit too chipper and lively. <laughs> so let's talk about disastrous pathogens. So the Black Death is very famous, so I'm not going to dwell too much on the basics. Um, the Black Death killed at least a third of the European population, 
maybe as many as a half. I think people know about the Black Death, but I don't, just to pause for a second, I'm not sure if everyone is really aware of just how devastating it was to the population and how much of a generational shock that it was. Yeah, it's really reflected in the artwork as well. If you look up artwork from this period, mm-hmm. it's something else. And I think we have a different frame of reference now, having experienced the pandemic. And I know a lot of people are talking about the plague quite a bit and talking about previous pandemics during the early stages of the plague. But, um, you know, truly a devastating, world-changing, world-shaping event. Yeah, so it peaked in the mid-1300s. Entire families and towns died with nobody to bury them. And it's really tragic beyond words. It became the locus of violent religious madness, particularly against the Jews who were considered to be, quote, poisoner of the wells, end quote. Um, And they were blamed for the plague. There was a sect of these people who became so dangerous... Um, and were called the flagellants, and they operated mainly in Germany and the Netherlands. So hold on, Holly, you're saying that social tensions and pressures rose, and so did anti-Semitism? Yeah. Huh. Okay, go on. (laughs) (laughs) So the flagellants, if you want to make a guess at what they're famous for, and how they earned their name. Um, Flag-bearing? Not flag-bearing. They were um, famous for self-flagellation. And for those of you who don't know, flagellation is the act of... It's a a form of self-harm, usually with a whip or a cat of nine tails or something like that. Um, And they would whip themselves, and sometimes until they bled. Kind of self-mortification. Again, you know, very focused on kind of sin and the body. Yes, this is very much for atonement. It's like if you can get God to see how sorry you are for the state of things, maybe he'll do something about it. Sounds like a healthy relationship. So all of this falls under the madness of the cross. So kind of like frenzied self-harm behaviors in mass with religious motivation. Madness of the cross. Exactly. Though, interestingly enough, that these instances of mass flagellation seem to coincide with crop failure. So once again, there are these environmental pressures that are coming in that are seemingly spurring on these behaviors. Processions could involve entire towns carrying crosses, banners, and whipping themselves. They were against church authority and against the Jews. So it's a populist movement attempting to retain power for the people and also deeply racist. I don't like how familiar that sounds. (laughs) I don't know if there's anything to like about that. So (laughs) that makes sense. (laughs) So they targeted Jewish people fervently, killing at one point the entire Jewish population of Strasbourg, which was about 2,000 people. In 1349, they did the same thing in Frankfurt, Mainz, Cologne, Brussels, Antwerp, and the Low Countries. Pope Clement VI put a ban on flagellants, but the movement lingered on in splinter groups for centuries afterwards. And just to make this incredibly clear, 
Madness is not an excuse for racism or anti-Semitism. The racism and anti-Semitism probably preceded the madness. I think we could safely hazard that. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to make this point because there is a form of social behavior that's so aberrant that it's tempting to kind of sweep it up into kind of like language of illness. But I think it's really important to decouple these things. And that's what we're trying to do here. So along with the Black Death, we have one of the most, what I consider one of the most fascinating episodes in medieval history. Yes. So Dancing Mania, also known as Choreomania, also known as St. Vitu's Dance, also known as Tarantism. Tarantism? Tarantism, named after the tarantula. Spontaneous dancing would break out all over Central Europe along pilgrimage trails between the 1400s and 1800s. By some accounts, people would dance involuntarily until their feet bled or they were foaming at the mouth. Sometimes dancers would make crude gestures or even have sex in public. This mass dancing was seemingly contagious and would move from town to town. Allegedly, it mostly impacted women, getting labeled as a form of hysteria by modern psychiatrists. In one instance, as many as 400 people were recorded dancing. I mean, too many women doing anything is pretty suspect. (laughs) (laughs) One woman danced for at least six days in a row. Um, Another woman danced on the same day every year for two decades. Was it her birthday? God, I don't know. (laughs) I don't think that's the implication. So what might cause this behavior? Some believe that, um, and I'm talking... Contemporary. Yeah, contemporary scholars believe that it might be a hallucinogenic spider bite. Which is where the tarantellism thing comes from. Others thought that it might be hallucinogenic mold called ergot, which grows on kind of grain when it gets moist and it's not stored properly. These two, as far as the reading I've done, have been kind of dismissed. So it's not a mass hallucinogen, probably. But perhaps more likely, it's been explained as a collective stress reaction. A large incident of dancing occurred around the same time as Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church, not to mention all of the plague, not to mention all of the crop failures. Political and spiritual tensions were high. All this said, there is also thinking that these accounts of the dancing mania is much exaggerated. That there is a more likely explanation that this is actually ritualistic and not spontaneous or compulsive. There's an idea that the dancing mania got a bad rap because those controlling the narrative didn't like that it was happening. And that you could see this mass dancing in a much more Dionysian kind of a construct than in one of madness. So a kind of like celebratory break from social pressures with a level of chaos that would challenge existing structures and upend existing structures. Celebratory might be a little strong from what I read, Mm -hmm. but still that idea of like catharsis. Mm -hmm. Everything's going wrong in the world. What are you going to do? You're going to go out into the town square and you're going to shake it until you feel better. (laughs) Um, And maybe potentially your feet feel worse. And potentially your feet feel worse and maybe you don't care. Mm -hmm. 
maybe you just want to just cut loose and have sex in a public square and just completely lose your mind about it. I mean, that doesn't seem impossible. In any case, our best understanding of this event is through understanding people's stress response, either that they are compulsively acting out of stress or they are seeking catharsis amidst their stress. Yeah, and you think about, I mean, kind of cataclysmic periods of time, you know, the entire previous generation being half eliminated and the kind of social disarray that ensued, not to mention the other pressures that you were talking about. Yeah, it's a lot for anybody to deal with, and it's I can't blame anybody for seeking some kind of catharsis out of that. So, in the background to all of this, the Aristotelian concept of the good life is alive and well. Aristotle thought good health was a precondition for happiness, and so that's not great. Happiness often got construed as the same as doing well in life. Emotions were seen as necessary for regulating social life and social stability. So you don't enjoy your emotions. Your emotions help keep you in check. And that they believed in moderation in emotions, diet, thought, and attire. Um, illness and melancholy um, are seen as a moral disorder under this framework. Again, i.e., if you're sinful, you get sick, or if you act out of moderation, you get sick. And to that end, severe mental illness was used to explain social unrest. And strong health was associated with strong hierarchies. And the poor were associated with excessive emotion. So we see this hierarchy of developing, of kind of moderation is good, the wealthy are moderate, the poor are bad and immoderate, and that explains social dynamics. I think that that's part of it. There's one more detail that I think is important context for understanding why they thought that social unrest was a result of mental illness and why they thought that particularly strong health was associated with strong hierarchies. And it's because at this point in time, the peasants are revolting. <laughs> the peasants are trying to overthrow the ruling class during this time period. And so it's a convenient narrative by the ruling class, which is consolidating at this point in time, to basically say that everyone who's trying to overthrow them is insane. So at this point, we're kind of, we're around, we're towards the end of our time period. Yeah, we're in the high Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So at this time, there was a uniting of the bourgeoisie and royalty, which hadn't happened before, or at least not in the way that we're maybe used to it in a modern context. So by bourgeoisie, you mean merchant class? Essentially. So to divide the peasantry, something that the ruling class did is that they used sexual politics. In particular, they weaponized men against women to commit mass sexual violence as a counter-revolutionary measure. And the ruling class kind of obviously wind up winning this bout, um, and this takes us down the road to capitalism. The sexual politics and the sexual violence um, was used to fuel misogyny that would later enable the witch trials, which we are going to talk about next episode. So we see kind of these... There's a lot of change happening during this period, even though the Middle Ages are kind of considered stagnant or that's been the prevailing narrative. 
so we see kind of a consolidation of the power of the of um, the crown um, of nation states um, and the rise of a merchant class alliances between the two changing sexual politics and gender roles changing economic forces and you know that that's going to bring us into the next episode yeah but before we leave for this episode we have one last story um we're going to go over the book of marjorie kemp marjorie kemp was born in 1373 um and basically had some kind of an episode in 1393 um following the birth of uh, one of her children um, and then she wound up having this story written down and dictated in 1436. It is possible that she had some kind of postpartum condition. Or at least that some kind of postpartum um, circumstances prompted this first episode that she describes in her writing. Right. We know that she was um, had to be bound um, to keep her from self-harming uh, quite aggressively. She also heard and saw devils. So she's having quite the experience here. In her kind of autobiography, she writes about herself passively in the third person, very much subject to the influence of God and the devil. And for all of her visions, um, she was put on trial for heresy, um, but was later exonerated as being orthodox. So they decided that her visions were in line with the church's doctrine, and so she got to live. Her biography is the first autobiographical example of the inner experience in the English language. So this is the first time that somebody put to pen what their inner experience was, their inner dialogue, their inner thoughts, um, all of that, at least for the English language. And that these narratives of madness, whatever that is, was were disproportionately written by the religious. And it's interesting that, you know, we're, we consider this uh, a first-person account of what we would now likely consider madness um, or some form of mental illness. Um, and I think it's imp important to include people's firsthand accounts and self-reports. And this person would not have considered herself to be mad. She understood herself to be in direct communication with supernatural forces, including Jesus Christ, including devils and the devil. Um, so she's having a profoundly religious experience and frames her experience in religious terms. She was illiterate, but she dictated her story in the third person to one note taker and then another um, in her later life. And with that, I think it's time for wrap up. Maya, what are you still processing? I think I'm still processing the um, dancing phenomenon and there's just so many w potential ways to think about it and we're working with such limited information but both the dancing phenomenon and the flagellants seem to me like there's these social conditions that are giving rise to essentially unusual and mass behaviors that have like a tone of violence a tone of compulsion a tone of threat to them and um trying to think our way back and understand these things from a modern framework with also kind of unreliable reports 
you know, maybe potentially in the case of the dancing mania. Um, I think I'm processing kind of both the level of social devastation that people grappled with and the level of social pressure and the violence that that gave rise to and the difficulty of, as always, sifting through this information to um, find core experiences that create a sense of continuity for us. I think I'm still processing that powerful people used madness as a cudgel to hang on to power and that that was a successful way to divide the peasantry. Right, and I think that this gets back to a theme that we talk about in terms of the history that we're going over here, which is the history of madness is the history of power. Um, and that feels like a really important example of that. So the deployment of concepts of madness to um, discredit social movements, to divide people, um, and that kind of form of control using that language feels like a really clear example of that. Yeah. I'm also really interested in Marjorie Kemp's narrative. Um, there's a lot that I think is fascinating about it and, and to read, you know, again, filtered through the dictation process and her narrator. Um, she's far from us, but also, you know, there's an immediacy to the experiences that she's describing and an intensity to them. But I also think it's so interesting as we think about kind of madness and you know, the varied experiences of cognition that people have, the varied, the varied quality of mind. I think that it's interesting to think about this first narrative of inner life being in essence a narrative of madness or a narrative of a state that one person is experiencing that others don't. And I think about the debt we owe to like understanding interiority, that pressure comes to people who are attempting to explain themselves to others are under that pressure to explain themselves to others because their their experience is different than others. I think that there's a kind of, there's something that I'm still kind of processing within all of that. What was your takeaway? I think, I think that, you know, there's a really powerful takeaway here that could probably come from any of the episodes, which is your social frameworks and the limits of your information define your experience. So under religious frameworks, the solutions or lack thereof for human experiences are religious ones. And people's ability to have a naturalistic solution, whether or not that was effective, was limited and filtered through access to information and geography, as it still is. That's very similar to my takeaway, where it's just like thinking about how culturally and environmentally dependent madness is. Right. And when we think about madness in a medical context where medic medicine is looking for objectivity, there's an intense subjectivity to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I also think that we're seeing something a little bit new here. Like we're really talking about the influence of Christianity and lenses of Christianity and medieval Europe to understand and describe and manage madness over a long time period over a pretty wide geographic area and so this is a bit of a departure from the kind of threads that we've talked about before and it's a it's an external cause of madness it's a you know it's attributing inner experiences to outer forces 
um, and it's only the Galenic model, it's only the humoral system that exists to offer a counterweight to that. So even as we, you know, have plenty to say about that being the prevailing medical model for so long and what that says about the limits of science, that's a naturalistic model that counters this supernatural religious approach. We'll see the supernatural narrative get countered again and again, and especially next episode. We're going to have uh, Mr. Descartes is going to have some things to say about that. We don't want to put Descartes before the horse, Holly. <laughs> oh, God. Holly's so mad at me. <laughs> going to kick you off the show. Um, this is a book club, and so we have a book recommendation. Um, we have Madness, A Brief History by Roy Porter. This is another kind of compact little book that if you just want a quick read, brief overview, kind of um, fill in some of the gaps, great resource. If you want pithy things to say at parties, like the history of madness is the history of power, look no further. Yeah, than the immortal Roy Porter. All right, I'm Holly. I'm Maya. This has been the Bedlam Book Club. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there.